Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're going to be spending today um, speaking about the cross. And the reason we want to do that is because um, a lot of you guys know this is Palm Sunday. And a lot of times we'll teach on the events of Palm Sunday, but the reality is what happens on Palm Sunday is all directed towards what's happening five days later. And, and that means like in like a literal sense, he's literally coming into Jerusalem for Passover, but it also means kind of in the larger theological sense that the reason he not only came to Jerusalem, but came to the world was to fulfill his purpose, which was dying on the cross. And so we want to spend this morning talking about the cross. So as we go into Passion Week, that we would have a frame of reference of how to, to orient our hearts and our minds around this concept that, to be honest, can feel somewhat ambiguous. We know it's important, right? We know it's significant. But many of us have a hard time articulating why and what the cross is all about. But one thing that we do know is as a culture, we are obsessed with functional saviors. And it starts at a very early age. My, my son, Augustine, loves superheroes, like every five-year-old boy should. Um, but it's always funny because when we like play with his action figures, it's always interesting to hear where he's at as far as who's the strongest and why they're the strongest. The first season, it was Hulk, and then it became Spider-Man, and then it was Iron Man, and then, like, and then there's the ones like he's inventing, and then he's like got into Power Rangers and all these things, and he's like always shifting. Like, like this is the like apex like battle figure of his toys. And um, as I'm watching him do this, I can't help but just draw the correlation that as a culture, every one of us we we grow up, but we don't grow up. We're all looking for these functional saviors to say, "This is the strongest. This is what I can attach to to provide rescue and salvation for my life." Um, more, kind of more in the recent past, we used to look at authority systems. We used to look at institutions or experts. But over the past few decades, we've started to lose trust in authority and authority systems. Um, we've transferred that largely to political figures and thinking, oh, this person or this political party, they, they can provide the salvation and the rescue that is so desperately needed for our world. We could look at kind of scientific consensus. Well, it's just science. We need more research. We know, and that's where I'm going to put my trust. If research and science says it, <coughs> then, that, then I believe it. And what's interesting is even that, under kind of the, which has kind of been the, kind of the banner the last couple 200 years, even that's kind of under attack. Like, well, really, can we believe the research? Because this is all research skewed. We might look at things like financial independence. Like, if I just make enough money, then I will have that sense of I've been rescued. And even just the sense of autonomy. Um, some of us might just look at even just health culture that is so prevalent here on the, the coast. That if I get rid of enough chemicals in my food, I go to enough yoga sessions, then, then I will be saved. And, we all, and pick your poison, materialistic consumerism, self-realization, Western ideology. I mean, every single person is looking for something or some system to save them. And I think what's been so interesting the past couple hundred, or the past, I'm sorry, the past two years, has been every single one of those systems has been under attack. Everyone. 
And what I, what I sense pastorally is that there is a, the reason why there's such high levels of fear and anxiety right now is because people are like, what do I trust? I can't trust the economy. I can't trust the health in my body. I can't trust the political system. Like there's a war going on. I didn't think I was going to see one of those in my lifetime. I mean, you, you name it. Whatever functional savior you had in your mind, it has been challenged the past couple of years. What I'd like to propose to you today is that there, I mean, if you can, you can move like Augustine from one action figure to the other of like which one you think is going to be the strongest. Well, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do this. But I'm just going to tell you at the end of your life, it'll feel like just a frivolous sense of wasted energy unless you find out the one thing that is not just a functional savior, but an actual savior. And it's the cross that Jesus died on for you. And so what I'd like to propose today is that we would take whatever sort of functional savior that you like, and we put it on the shelf, and we would take a good hard look at the biblical claim that there is only one thing, one person, and one event that is worthy of our absolute trust for salvation. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, Paul makes this statement, and I want this to be my, my prayer this morning. He says this, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I love at the opening of his letter, Paul, who's intellectually brilliant, said, I didn't come for that. Matter of fact, I only came for one thing. I want one thing to be known among you, and it is Christ and him crucified. And if you know, the, the, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, he dives into some wild stuff. Everything from spiritual gifts to gender roles to sexuality to all of these things. But you know how he starts all of these hot topic things in 1 Corinthians? The cross. He says, I want you to know and for me to know in this place that Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I want to ask four questions this morning that I believe are really, really significant for us if we are to understand why the cross deserves our ultimate trust. I'm sorry to say, rather Jesus' death on the cross. So number one question I want to ask is, what is the cross? Um, and to just kind of look at what it actually is. The second thing we're going to do is, how does the cross work? I don't know if you ever asked this question, but how does Jesus' death on the cross actually atone um, for sin? Third thing we're going to ask is, why? Even if we know what it is and how it works, what was the motivation for the cross? And then lastly, I want to address the question, well, who is the cross for? And so we're going to work through these four different themes this morning. But first, I would like to, to pray. Well, Jesus, we, we pause here, Lord, as we are about to step foot on some sacred ground. Lord, as we come and we approach the beauty and the horror, the wonder and the profound nature of the cross, Lord, we're asking that you would, you would engage our minds you would engage our hearts, you'd engage our bodies and our spirit. And Lord, we come and we, we lay down our functional saviors, God, the idols we've had in our life, 
that we've looked to for purpose, for meaning, for salvation. And Holy Spirit, we ask that today you would illuminate the profound reality of what the cross of Christ represents. In Jesus' name, amen. So first question, what is the cross? In that same book that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians, at the beginning of it, he says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1950 says this, the events that happened on Calvary's Hill are in every respect the most crucial in all of human history. To Christian people, there is nothing more important than this. Every one of us must ask ourselves this question. Does the cross mean that to us? Is it to us everything? The power of God, the wisdom of God, is it the whole basis of life? Is it the thing that we rely on in every respect? Because if it's not, what Paul says is that it's foolishness. And so that what I'd like to kind of point is kind of these two different perspectives. The cross, what is it? It is either foolishness or it's the foundation of everything. It's one or the other. And he says, for some, it's foolishness. And I think that that's okay. If you're here and, and this morning, you can be like, I don't get it. I don't get the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross for my sins and what even that means and why that is. And I'm so glad you're here. I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit just helps to kind of just turn on an internal light bulb inside of you and illuminates this for you. But I think it's not just for those who might be unfamiliar with the story. I think it can be even those of us who've become overly familiar with the story, that it can just become foolishness for us. I think about kind of our modern lens of the cross. I mean, it's everywhere, right? It's kind of on the rise in like fashion right now to have like a cross earring or this. Um, that's kind of been a trend the past hundred years. Coco Chanel, I was like, just got on this weird rabbit trail. I'm like, where did, when did the cross start showing up in fashion? And it was like the 1930s. And Coco Chanel started like wearing these like bracelets with cross on it. I was like, that's awesome. And we just from there have not turned around. And maybe for you, it's not like a fashion symbol. Maybe for you, it's kind of been a point of tension. I remember growing up, going to church in La Jolla, and I remember lawsuit after lawsuit trying to take down the Mount Soledad cross at the top of the mountain. And I remember people getting really, kind of, like, just round up, like, wound up about, like, oh, we, we need to keep the cross there. And people were like, no, we have to take it down. And I remember just being like, why, why is this thing so political? So maybe it's a fashion symbol. Maybe for you, it's kind of a political point of tension. Maybe it's... For you to sing. But I think for, for many of the people looking at it, when you look at a cross, it doesn't just stop you in your tracks to the point that you need to kind of just pause. It's become normalized. For the ancient Romans, it was foolishness. When doing research about where the cross came from, most people believe it was invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and it was taken over by the Greeks and eventually by the Romans who then perfected it. One Roman historian says that it was the most cruel method of execution ever practiced for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. 
The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, and armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, and other non-persons in the ancient mind. One Roman writer said that the word cross should not even be mentioned in the presence of a Roman citizen. It was horrific to even be thinking about it. It is reserved not just as a normal punishment, but the harsh, harshest punish, punishment for a non-Roman citizen traitor. For the Jews, the cross was foolishness. Because there's a, a verse in Deuteronomy 21 that says that anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so for them, anyone who is hung on a tree, automatically they assume that God had cursed them. And so when Paul says the cross is foolishness, for some... It should make a lot of sense, whether it's in our modern context and we've just kind of just sentimentalized it or turned it into a fashion symbol or whether you're an ancient Roman and you're like, it is the most grotesque way that you could punish someone coming against the Roman rule or whether you're a Jewish person, it's like whoever is actually hanging on that tree is cursed by God, which makes it really interesting that for the early church, it was no longer foolishness, it was a foundation. Why? Would they make the cross of Christ not something that they downplayed, but something that they elevated? John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, the apostles were quite familiar with this legislation and with this implication that Jesus died under the divine curse. Yet instead of hushing it up, they deliberately drew people's attention to it. So evidently, they were not embarrassed by it. They did not think of Jesus as in any sense deserving to be accursed by God. They must therefore have at least begun to understand that it was our curse which he was bearing. It's fascinating that the book of Revelation, the last book written in the Bible, is written as a revelation of Jesus Christ's victory over evil and death once and for all. But the central saving figure in the book of Revelation, check this out, is a slain lamb. Every time in the book of Revelation you're introduced to this victorious figure who's going to make all things right, he's referred to as someone who has been slain, a crossed figure. Despite their sufferings from war, famine, plague, and persecution, and other catastrophes, God's people can yet overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and are assured that the final victory will be his and theirs since the Lamb proves to the Lord of lords and King of kings. And so you see that as as the rest of the culture tries to move it away because of its horror, or they try and sentimentalize it to make the implications of it way more shallow, the early church started to elevate it and elevate it and say, no, this is everything. This is the center point of our faith. If you look at early Christian symbols, I don't know if you knew this, but the cross came into the picture in the second century. Before that, one of the earliest Christian symbols that they found etched was a peacock, which was a depiction of eternity. And then it became the ictus, which is just Greek for fish, and it was an acronym talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so they would draw pictures of peacocks or fish and things. But around the second century, what you start seeing is all of those other symbols that were around, the dove, the Cairo, these different things, started being replaced by the cross. And all of a sudden, it didn't take very long for not only them not to be embarrassed of the cross, but to say, this is, if you want to know one thing about our faith, you need to look to the cross. This is everything about our faith. 
And I just want to propose to you, what is the cross? You have to figure out which one it is to you. Is it foolishness? Or is it the foundation of everything? John Piper says it like this, life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the, cherish, for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Anglican bishop Stephen Neal says this, In the Christian theology of history, the death of Christ is the central point of history. Here, all roads of the past converge, hence all roads of the future diverge. And so we're left here with our first question being like, what is the cross? Well, it is either the foundation of everything or it is foolishness. Which leads to a second question. Well, if, it's, if we're proposing today that it needs to be the foundation of everything, how does it even work? How, how does an ancient Roman executionary vehicle of a perfect rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, how does that become the center point of the largest kind of world faith system that's ever existed? How does it get to that point? How does the cross work? Two things I'd like to propose of how to understand the cross and how it works. Number one is we have to understand it's a mystery. And secondly, we have to understand it as a mosaic. First, it's a mystery. Ephesians 1, 7 through 9 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all sins in accordance to the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. There's something about the bloodshed of Jesus on the cross that is revealing the mystery of God's will. And so I want to begin there because in the next few minutes, we're going to be talking a lot about some specifics about what the cross does and what it accomplishes. But I I don't want to just, you leave today saying, I know everything there is about the cross. Or a 30-minute lecture, I'm good. Paul, who understood the cross probably than anyone better in this room, talks about this is, this is the way that God chose to reveal a mystery as well. And so I want to approach it with not a sense of like mastery, of like, oh, we get it, but holding it with a sense of wonder and recognizing as much as we want to uncover what it does and how it works and why Jesus went that route, at the end of the day, I still want us to have our eyes open and our hearts open to the reality of this is so much bigger than anything we could ever imagine. The second thing I want to proposed of how we understand how it works is through the lens of a mosaic. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with kind of a mosaic piece of art where rather than one medium or one piece of um, paint or things like that, it's, it's different pieces put together to make one image. And Joshua M. McNall wrote an amazing book called The Mosaic of Atonement. And I love how he puts it forward where he talks about there's four primary models of atonement. And rather than just choosing the best one, he says, if you look at all four of them, it actually creates a mosaic that is incredibly beautiful and holistic in how we understand the cross. So there's four models that he puts forth. And so we're going to talk about the word atonement. Atonement is how the cross deals with sin, how it works, how it makes right our relationship with God. How does it even function? And historically, there's been four, there's been lots, but there's been four major ones. Recapitulation, 
Penal substitution, Christus Victor, and moral influence. Now, fair warning, you're probably already like zoning out some of you at this moment. We're going to nerd out just a bit. But I promise, if you stay tuned, these have a tremendous amount of implication for your life. So stick with me. Because I want to work through each one of these models of atonement. Because I think each one of them will show in a piece of that mosaic. Number one, I want to talk about this big word, recapitulation. If you ever want to like think of what does that mean, just think of the first half of the word, recap. Jesus is recapping or recapitulating a story, the human story. Um, here's the definition of recapitulation. It might even be on your screen. It might not be. Um, so it says this, Christ is a kind of second Adam who recapitulates or relives the entire human story on our behalf. The notion focuses upon the biblical idea that Jesus stands in a position similar to Adam as he's representative of the entire human race. And so this idea of recapitulation is this idea that Everything that has gone wrong in the world for, for the Christian, we trace back to Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered into the story. And because of Adam's failure, and by Adam, that's a Hebrew word for humanity, he is a picture of all of humanity. He tells the story of why there's evil and suffering and death in the world today. And just in the same way that came through one person, Jesus comes as one person and relives that story, a better story, and invites us into not the ramifications of sin and the fall, but the ramifications of resurrection and life. And so it's important, every one of these, like, well, where is that in the Bible? Romans 5, 12, and then verse 17, 18 says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. For if by the trespasses of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespasses results in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Um, this is not a really familiar model that we like talk about within kind of the Western evangelical church very much. But recapitulation is an incredibly beautiful element of the mosaic of atonement. That Jesus came in the same way, I mean, the same way we look back at Genesis 3 and like, man, if, if Adam wouldn't have eaten the apple, right? Like if, if things would have gone differently, this would have been a whole different story. And as much fun as we like to kind of poke, as, as, as we like to blame and poke fun at Adam and Eve and what they did, there's also a seriousness to that. And theologically speaking, it all came through one person. And so what Jesus comes to do is he relives as a better Adam, a new Adam. And so in the same way, because one man sinned, we are all underneath the penalty of that trespass because Jesus came as one man and gave himself as the perfect sacrifice, we now all live under the ramifications of his grace and righteousness. The second one is called penal substitution. And if you've grown up within kind of American evangelicalism or you grew up in um, you know, some, some sort of non-denominational or a Calvary Chapel or a Baptist or Presbyterian kind of upbringing, 
The chances are this model of atonement is the one you've heard most about. So here's the definition of penal substitution. It views Christ as having borne the penalty of human sin upon the cross. He was therefore our substitute because divine judgment was poured out on him instead of us. Does that sound familiar? That, growing up, that's all I ever heard. The, the phrase, Jesus died on the cross for your sin, for my sin. It's kind of like I just grew up hearing that. And I didn't really hear anything else. And the reason for that is because we tend to, as human beings, we tend to move away from things that feel complex and we like to move towards things that are simple. And so, for whatever reason, about 150 years ago, this became the model of atonement that was attached to for a, lar- for a large part of the Western church. And so I want to talk about it because recently it's been under some scrutiny. Like, really? So G- and, and, the, and the scrutiny comes from, like, the idea of, specifically this idea of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. And um, kind of as... Western, progressive, secular thinkers, we don't really like even the word wrath. We're just like, I don't know if this really fits in with my framework of God. And another kind of critique of it has been people just saying like, well, it's, it's actually one of the newest models within Christian history. We don't see a lot of it in the early church talked about it like this way. This is the critique. And so the question we have to wrestle with today is because A, this has been the most familiar model. B, it has been under the most scrutiny. And C, people have said that there's no historical value. We have to look at the Bible and ask ourselves the question, is there merit to this model of atonement, this idea that Jesus became our substitute on the cross? So let me read you some passages. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. Um, actually, let's go down to 2 Corinthians um, 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse John 2.2. 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, and the reality is there's dozens, I've, just for time's sake, I've had to narrow it down. There are dozens of scriptures that talks about this idea of a substitutionary, Jesus standing in our place for the penalty of sin. But there's, there's two, I think the two strongest reasons to believe that this atonement model should hold up is because of what this week represents. Does anyone know what this week is? What is it? It's Holy Week. What does that mean? What's coming up? Good Friday, Easter. What's, an, what's another holiday that comes this week? Passover. The reason why this is, ho- is this, this was Holy Week long before Jesus died on the cross. This is Passover. And when you look at the story of Passover, which is, is arguably the most central story in the Jewish um, framework, is it's a story of the blood of a lamb covering over a family so they, they would not receive a penalty, but the lamb did. The second thing that I would say, if you look at just kind of the biblical idea of a substitutionary type of atonement, is the, the day of atonement. And so I know many of you guys read Leviticus quite often in your Bibles. Um, I mean, every time I've done a Bible reading plan, it's hard not to just want to skip that thing. 
But I would encourage you, if you would sometime, if you read Leviticus, read it like a V. It's written in a chiastic form, meaning that the, the first chapter, the last chapter coincide, the second and the second to last coincide, all the way down to the middle chapter of the book is chapter 13, which talks about the Day of Atonement. The entire book of Leviticus, all of the laws, all the priestly cleansing, everything comes down to this one moment where there are two goats. One is sacrificed and carries the sin of the people in a sacrifice. The other goat is sent out in a way that frees and leaves the sin away, but it's called one sacrifice. And so if you look at the Jewish framework that Jesus came into and the words like he is the the lamb that was slain, it's hard to just do away with all substitutionary atonement. It's it's everywhere in the Bible. But the reason... If, we're gonna, if I can just be honest with you just for the next few minutes, we have a hard time with this because as a culture, we are increasingly have a hard time with the concept of sin. Not that we're sinning, but that sin even exists. I don't like you using that word. I don't like feeling responsible. And so the more we have grown a dislike and a distaste for the idea of sin, the more this model of atonement has kind of been pushed to the fringe. Again, John Stott says it, like, says it well. He says, if we were in their place, this is talking about those who crucified Christ, we would have done what they did. Indeed, we have done it. For whenever we turn away from Christ, we are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjugating him to public disgrace. Hebrews 6.6. 6. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas, to our envy like the priest, to our ambition like Pilate. And I don't want to move past this point without us actually sitting with the reality of if, if substitutionary atonement is a real thing, then it wasn't just Roman guards and high priests who put them on the cross. It was you and it was me. The Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bernard says it like this, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all the shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in the din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone.'" Those are, those are uncomfortable words for me to say in church, which tells me something about the culture that we're in. It's interesting that as a culture, and I think there's, and believe me, there's a lot of good that has come in the past you know, few decades um, with psychology and therapy and things like this, but there's an interesting, there's an interesting concept to this. When John Stott in his book, The Cross, Cross of Christ, is it like this, but is it fair to blame hum, human beings for their misconduct? What, what a, a massive question we're struggling with right now. Is it fair to blame human beings for their misconduct? Are we really responsible for our actions? Are we not more often victims of other agencies than free agencies ourselves? And so more sinned against than sinning? 
A whole gamut of scapegoats is ready at hand. It's our genes. It's our chemistry. A temporary hormonal imbalance. Our inherited temper. Our temperament. Our parents' failures during our early childhood. Our upbringing. Our education and social environment. Together, these seems to constitute an infallible alibi. Dr. Menninger says this, Many former sins have become crimes, so that the responsibility for dealing with them has passed from the church to the state from priests to policemen, while others have dissipated into sickness or at least into symptoms of sickness, so that in their case, punishment have been replaced by treatment. A third convenient device called collective irresponsibility has enabled us to transfer the blame of some of our deviant behaviors from ourselves as individuals to society as a whole. And so I want to just... I think if we're honest, we have psychologized things so much that, to be honest, we are so quick to blame the family of origin, the hormonal imbalance, the environment we grew up in, the education or lack of education that we got, that all of a sudden it is very rare, I'm speaking for myself here, it is very for me, rare for me just to be like, I messed up. I did. Are there other factors at play? Of course. But I have found myself spending less and less time with the idea of, oh, God, it is against you and you alone who I've sinned. And I think that the cross calls us back to the reality that if we're serious about this type of atonement, the reality is is it wasn't just an evil world to put up on the cross. It was me, my sin, the choices I made, put him there. And if I can't come to grips with that, then I will never see the preciousness and the cost of the cross. You see, the Bible takes sin seriously because it takes man, male and female, seriously, Stott says. He later on says, what is... What is common to the biblical concept of the holiness and the wrath of God is the truth that they cannot coexist with sin. God's holiness exposes sin. His wrath opposes it. So sin can approach God, and God cannot tolerate sin. And I just got to be honest, a lot of the conversations that I have with people, it's not that they don't like Jesus, but I think the cross makes people feel really uncomfortable. And I just want to call us to a, an honesty that yes, I'm sure that so much of what you've done in your life could be a result of A, B, or C. But at some point, if we never take responsibility for the sin we have committed, then we have missed the dignity that the Bible places on us. That we've been made in God's image. We have the ability to make choices. We are not 100% the victim of our surrounding or what's been given to us. We have the Holy Spirit of God inside of us, the ability we've been made in the image of God. And so when we sin, all of a sudden we have to reckon with the idea of, well, what do we do with that? Because according to the cross, that had to be dealt with very severely. Now here's the good news. You see, as we live in a culture that says, listen, there is no holy standard. Do whatever you want. There is no sense of morality. There is no absolute truth. It's the exact same culture that comes and punishes those who break the invisible law that they swore that never existed, which is exhausting. 
But here the Bible gives us the exact opposite. It says, your sin has to be accounted for. You don't have the right to do whatever you want to do. You are called to live a holy way. And if you live outside of that, there is massive punishment. But here's the good news. It's already been dealt with. It's been paid for. And so rather than, being, rather than being afraid of this standard and pretending it doesn't exist, God says, no, that standard still exists. You have to live according to this. But when you fail, I have already made a way through the cross of Jesus Christ for you to be looked at through that same righteous standard. Which for me, I mean, I love recapitulation. I love the idea of Jesus as a second Adam. But I love the substitutionary atonement. Because if I don't, if I miss that, I have no personal responsibility for my own sin. And when I don't take seriously my sin, it makes the worth and the cost of Christ diminish. It was costly because of me, which grows my love for Jesus. The third model of atonement is what's called Christus Victor. And in Latin, it just means Christ the victor. If you already knew that, well done. You're well on your way to learning Latin. Uh, <clears throat> This view this is a really cool one. Again, not talked a lot about a kind of Western Christianity. This view brings out the themes of the victory of God in Christ over the evil power of the world, mainly Satan. By defeating the evil powers that opposed God, Jesus Christ rescued his people from Satan and established himself as the rightful king of the cosmos. We see this all throughout Scripture. Genesis 3.15, the prophecy says, He will crush your head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. Psalm 92, 8 and 9, But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. Ephesians 6, 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us into what? Triumphal procession. So if... If the recapitulation tells us, addresses the idea of the broken world, we needed a new story, a new starting point. And if penal substitution talks about the brokenness of our flesh, of our own sin, then Christus Victor talks about the, the deals with the problem of Satan. It says, there is an evil in the world. There is a horrible, sinister force called the devil that is at work. It's not a fairy tale. It's actively at work and is the cause of much of the brokenness and darkness we see in the world around us today. And the cross deals with that. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent at Calvary. This is why the cross is a victorious, it's a victorious picture. And then the last one is called moral influence. Um, and it's normally adopted by more progressive streams of theology that essentially says that Christ's work is seen as exerting a powerful and loving moral influence upon humanity, where Jesus' gracious and self-sacrificing ministry reveals to us the true nature of God. God is love. And we look to the cross, we see how far love will go, was willing to go in order to redeem us. Jesus is therefore the exemplar of how we should live. And a lot of people kind of dismiss this one, like, the cross is just moral influence. It's just a good thing Jesus did. But I also want to say there's actually a lot of biblical precedence to this. Right? 1 John 2.6, whoever says that he lives in God must live as Jesus lived. 1 Peter 2.21, for to those who are called, Jesus Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. And I could go on. But the idea is that the moral influence is that the cross wasn't just an event that happened for you. It was a model set forth for you. 
And so, again, I, I know I just gave you a fire hose of probably more than you asked for today. But the question we're left with, well, how does the cross work? Is it re- through recapitulation? Is it through penal substitution? Is it through moral influence? Is it through Christus victory? I mean, how does it all work? And I would just like to propose to you today is the verses that I read just say, the answer is yes. Jesus deals with the broken world as he recapitulates the new Adam. Jesus deals with your sinful flesh when he substitutes himself in your place. Jesus deals with the devil as he crushes his head as the ultimate victor. And Jesus gives you an example through the life that he lived that led him to the cross. And my hope is as we look at that mosaic, we see like, wow, the cross is bigger than I've ever imagined. It deals with the world, the flesh, the devil, my way forward. It handles all of it. And then the kind of the, the question that moves us into that place, well then, why did he do this? Why would Jesus go to the cross? We know what the cross is. We know how it works, but why would he do it? And there's two things I would love to just lay before you. Number one, it was to restore relationship and it's to create cosmic reconciliation. The entire motivation of the cross was that you would be brought back into relationship with him. We see this in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 7. It says, For though for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership. If you're reading how the Greek goes, the whole thing, right? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The idea of the cross, the idea of going to sacrifice is that he knew you, he predestined you, he chosen you to be adopted back into his family. It's one of the most vivid pictures we have in the New Testament of the motivation of Christ. Is he wants you back. But the second thing that's really important to know is it's not just to have us back, it's to have everything back in order It's a cosmic reconciliation. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself, here it is, all things, whether things on earth or things are in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. And so why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he handle all of these different layers and lenses of atonement? Why would he go through that pain and that suffering that is unimaginable? Well, it's because he wants you back for himself, and he wants everything that's broken in this creation back in its right order. That's the purpose of the cross. Which leads us to our fourth question today. If we know what the cross is, we know a bit more of how it works, we know why Jesus went to the cross, then we have to deal with, I think, a really important question. Who is the cross for? And I would just like to lay before you this morning, it's for one and it's for all. If you read the Bible, one of my... One of my pet peeves early on in Bible college is when I realized that almost every single time the Bible ever speaks to you, the word you in Greek is plural. Paul rarely ever talks about this idea of like what God wants to happen in your life. I mean, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Do you know that you is not singular? He's talking to a nation. Sorry. Sorry for every graduation call you've ever received with that <laughs> verse in it. And so as my smug little, like, young little theologian, I'm like 22, I'm just like, that's not true. You're, that's an individualistic reading of that. I became super pharisaical with this idea. And as I was looking through, as I was reading through Romans, I found something really interesting. Although that is true most of the time, 
It's not true every time. There are times when Paul will break that normalcy to just talk about you. One of those times is in Romans 8, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. Some translations actually translate it, he set me free. It's not plural, it is singular. And so there is this sense that the cross, I mean, it's big. We've talked about some big concepts today, but if you don't understand that it was to set you free, me free, then we've missed the intimacy that the cross extends towards us. St. Augustine says that God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Jonathan Edwards says if only one person in all of history got saved, the mercy of God would have been eminently demonstrated. When he died in the wounded world, he died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less, said C.S. Lewis. But it's also not just for you and for me. It is for all. Worship team, you guys can come back up. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. And I love this verse. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The cross is more intimate and individualistic than you could ever imagine, and it's also more enormous and more collective than you could ever imagine. It is both and at the same time. John Stott says, the rulers sneered at him, shouting, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Their words spoken as an insult were the literal truth. He could not save himself and others simultaneously. He chose to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. And on the cross, as he's struggling to catch a breath, as he cries out in the most anguishing verse in the entire Bible, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he looks to the people piercing his side and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As he looks at a thief at one of his sides and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Like He's not stopping doing his work. And with his last breaths, he looks at everything that he's going on around him and everything he's observing. And the curse, our curse has been laid upon him. And he says these words that will echo for all of eternity. It is finished. Forever, it is finished. And every single soul craves, we long to be saved and to be rescued, so we look for things and for people and for systems to do it, and they only disappoint until we look and find ourselves at the feet of that dark mountain of Calvary, and we look up and we see those eyes and hear those words over our lives. It is finished to telestai. Once and forever. 
And when we recognize the beauty of the cross, that it deals with the brokenness of our world, the sinfulness of our flesh, the enemy of our soul, and all of those things are accomplished at what he's done, we are left with no other response but just to worship. What can we bring? What can we bring is I just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It is finished. It is finished. And my prayer today, if you've never heard about the cross of Jesus Christ, I pray that today you would find rest for your soul. You would stop having to chase functional savers. You would stop having to think that you have to save yourself and heal yourself. You don't and you can't. But you can hear the words sung out over you and spoken out of you from now and all of eternity. It is finished. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.